Knowable.me acknowledges that we record this podcast, work and live on the unceded lands and waters of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Their wisdom, storytelling and deep listening is a history we pay respect to in the creation of this podcast. Welcome to Knowable Me. I'm Kelly Schultz, bringing you three diverse voices on the topic of electric vehicles. I usually say we're talking to everyday people about everyday things. I'm not sure EVs are everyday things for most people just yet, but if you've ever wondered about EVs, this is the episode for you. Before we start, I've got a new acronym to teach you today, referred to a couple of times in the upcoming interviews, which is ICE. Not drug-related in this case. In the EV world, ICE, I-C-E, is an internal combustion engine. If you're not sure what that is, it's the engine in a vehicle that burns fuel to run. I started this journey by chatting to Ross from the Electric Vehicle Council of Australia and started, as we always do, by asking what makes his experience of electric vehicles unique. G'day, Kelly. Pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm Ross Durango from the Electric Vehicle Council. We're the industry peak body representing a wide range of corporates with interests in the transition to electrification of transport. As a family, we're the owners of a couple of EVs ourselves. So we've been in the space and doing the work for a while. Amazing. So what is your drive of choice and why? Or are you not allowed to play favourites? Oh, I'm allowed to tell you what I drive. I probably can't tell you what the best electric vehicle in the market is. That might <laughs> members. Uh, in my family, I drive an Outlander plug-in hybrid. I've had that for about five years, currently shopping for something a little bit bigger with seven seats as the kids are getting a bit bigger. So that's a vehicle that I can plug it into the wall, uh, run it on electricity around town, and it uses petrol when we're doing longer trips. Uh, my wife drives a Polestar, which we took delivery of in February this year. That's a pure electric car. Is there a different EV on your wish list that if money wasn't an object, what would be your dream car? The the specification I'm shopping for at the moment is seven seats, four-wheel drive, ability to tow, and pure EV. That's a very specific list of requirements because I go camping and my kids are getting bigger. Not much in the market that fits that bill right now, but there are vehicles coming that will. That's exciting. So then if there are vehicles coming, what is the current snapshot or the current state of EVs in Australia? Sure. So right now in Australia, we're at about 8.5% of new vehicles sold are electric vehicles. So around 1 in 12, thereabouts. Varies by state. So in the ACT, for example, we're at about 1 in 5 new vehicles being sold are EVs. And this is ramping up at a rate of knots. We've seen roughly 100% year-on-year growth in numbers of EVs being sold for the last three years. So three years ago, we were at about 1%. Now we're at about 8%. Next year, not sure. It depends a little bit on what lands in terms of fuel efficiency standards, but could be 15% of new vehicles sold, for example, next year. What are the key factors driving that, do you think? Is it availability, the range, the, the price, the availability of charging, the overall understanding? What are those key factors? The main thing that's limiting uptake right now is just supply because we are one of the few markets in the world that doesn't have fuel efficiency standards. We don't get supplied as many electric vehicles as our consumers want to buy. Those vehicles are getting preferentially supplied to those markets that have settings in place that effectively 
commercially require the car makers to ship electric vehicles to those markets. That is very much, though, work in progress by the federal government. So they are addressing that. We're expecting to see fuel efficiency standards come out late this year or early next. Just going to be a question of how strong those standards are and what the timeline is for their implementation. Is there something different about Australia that does make those standards harder to implement than other countries, given the the sheer size and rural nature of where we live? No, not really. I mean, these are standards that have been in place in California since the 1970s. We're not talking about something that's all that new or all that different. We just have a long history of not having had these requirements in this country. Do you think EVs are a a realistic option for rural Australia? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about the typical electric car being sold today, range is four or 500 kilometres, which even for rural Australians, there's not that many people who drive that many Ks in a day. The recharging infrastructure is rolling out all over the country, being delivered by private players with support from federal, state and local government programs. We're rapidly getting to a point where there's high power EV charging on the majority of regional routes and they are lower cost to own and operate. So, for example, the wife's Polestar that we recently picked up, the maintenance plan on that is please bring it back in two years or 30,000 kilometres for an air filter change. If I compare that to the maintenance plan for any new internal combustion engine vehicle I might buy, it's a lot lighter touch. And then, of course, they're cheaper to operate. So if I'm driving a standard petrol car and getting seven litres per hundred, it might cost me 14 or $15 per hundred Ks. If I compare that to an electric car and I'm charging it from my own solar panels or I'm charging it off peak, it's more like one or two dollars per hundred case. The real question for regional Australia is the use case of the vehicle. So as an example, the case that I gave of I'd like a seven seater, I'd like it to be four wheel drive, I'd like to be able to tow, those considerations come first before what is the powertrain. And that's really about making sure that we land those fuel efficiency standards so that we get a good variety of cars to meet everybody's use case. Yeah, that's really interesting that it's got to match. We've, we've got to do some matching up between the manufacturers and the policy, obviously, to be able to achieve that. You mentioned infrastructure being built. What sort of infrastructural changes do we need to make EVs a more viable option for everybody? So for the majority of Australians who live in standalone homes with driveways or garages, about three quarters of the Australian dwelling building stock looks like that. There's very little actually required. A lot of people will be able to get away with charging their car just from the standard PowerPoint on the wall. In a building like that, installing a standard EV charger that can fully recharge an EV overnight is typically a pretty straightforward thing to do. Within apartment complexes, more work is going to be required because if you live on the 15th floor of an apartment complex and your allocated car park is on the third basement floor, you can't easily run electricity from your metered supply to your car. So some work's going to be needed in contexts like that. The New South Wales government is doing some excellent work there. Anyone interested in that, have a look at New South Wales government's EV-ready buildings work. And then for people who can't walk off street at all, so about 7% of the building stock in terms of dwellings doesn't have off-street parking. Think terrace houses in the city. Think old apartments, old units that were put up in a manner where car parking wasn't included. Those folks are going to need public high-power charging infrastructure at places like shopping centres, petrol stations, council car parks. They would also benefit from EV charging attached to power poles down residential streets. And again, all this stuff is underway. State and federal government programs are co-funding industry to deliver all this equipment right now. 
Do you think the industry or, or people have learned something from last time we had to, to do a full-scale change? I, I don't imagine there are too many people in industry or government who were there when we changed from horses and carts to cars, but do you think there are lessons learned about how we make such big, large-scale change? Yeah, so large-scale change in the transport sector. My observation would be that from the transport side of things, shifting from petrol cars to electric cars is not as big a shift as shifting from horses to cars. But you do make a a viable comparison there, right? It is a huge change that is going to have tens of billions of dollars per annum of impact. In terms of does the sector, does industry learn from this? On the energy side of things, we've gone through a transformation from energy being centrally generated at generators and delivered to everyone's homes through poles and wires to something like one third of homes having solar on the roof and exporting electricity into the electricity system. For the electricity sector, that's been a huge change and the shift to EVs is going to be at least as significant as that for the energy system. Uh, lots and lots of folks in the energy system have been around for the transition to solar and are paying very close attention to the transition to EV. It might seem a bit blasphemous for me to ask, but are hybrids still a logical in-between step? Uh, So, look, we're the Electric Vehicle Council. We consider (laughs) an electric vehicle to be a plug-in hybrid, so something you can draw energy from your solar panels or from the grid and put it into a car. We would consider hybrids as uh, a technology that was brought out in the 90s, has seen reasonable uptake among consumers, but no longer really has a necessary place. Uh, if you're looking for a vehicle that can do the things that a hybrid can do, a plug-in hybrid with a petrol engine can do those things and can also supply the vast majority of its driving with electricity. And if you're looking at the use case of the vast majority of cars on the road, a pure battery electric vehicle will do it just fine. So I think what we'll likely see is that Internal combustion engines will give way to hybrids and plug-in hybrids and electric, and ultimately, hybrids and plug-in hybrids will give way to pure electric for almost every use case. It's a logical progression, I guess. And and with that, there is obviously the debate and, and some of the things we hear most about EVs is environmental impact, both the good and the bad. How do they actually stack up? So we've got a life cycle emissions calculator on our website that specifically addresses this. There's considerations around when you build an electric vehicle, because it's got that big battery in it, there's more embodied energy. So there's the potential for a higher carbon footprint at time of manufacture. But then over the life of the vehicle, you're not burning oil to run the vehicle, you're using electricity. And even if you're using coal-fired electricity, that's still cleaner than burning petrol or diesel in the car. So regardless of where you are in the country, the EV is the better environmental choice from a CO2 standpoint. If you're using renewable energy to fuel the EV, it is a much, much better choice than the petrol and diesel vehicle. So for that reason, and also for reasons of grid security, we encourage people, if they've got an EV where they can, charge it during the middle of the day, because that's when the sun's shining and the energy is the cleanest. If you can't charge it in the middle of the day, please charge it in the middle of the night, because that's the time when you will put the least stress on the energy system. The other bit that's probably relevant environmentally, it's not just about CO2, it's also about the quality of the air we breathe. Our cities have pollution problems, right? The responses to that have been long-standing in many jurisdictions, not about control of CO2, but control of the particulates and the emissions that come out of our cars. 
Those particulates are not good for you. Shifting the vehicles from petrol and diesel, which produce materials that are not good for you to breathe, to electric vehicles that don't, will give us significant health benefits. So I guess that's another environmental consideration. And we saw that, didn't we, when we took cars off the road for COVID and lockdowns and things, we took huge amounts of cars off the road and amazing impacts on air quality. So I imagine yeah. that's a, it's a good test case, not that's a good right. test our case. C- our cities smell better. And don't get me wrong, I'm not looking forward to going back to homeschool. That's not a thing I want to do. <laughs> but the, uh, that shift and the significance of it, Melbourne Uni did some excellent research on this. They concluded that we have about 11,000 people pass away earlier than they would otherwise need to specifically on account of pollution from combustion engines. This is a really significant number and it's something that electric vehicles are definitely part of solving. So moving on to the more love of cars, Australians are well known for their love of the big roar of an engine and really that emotional sell of vehicles. We've had Commodores built for Australia. It's a meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars, I think, was their advertising. What is someone who loves the roar of an engine or has that sort of affinity with a car? What is the emotional sell for an electric vehicle? I'd say, look, the meat pies, Holden cars, football, that was actually picked up from Chevrolet. I think it was baseball, apple pies back in the day. That was the original (laughs) ad. But the thing that we would say to that, right, you're absolutely correct. People have emotional attachment to their vehicles. Uh, For the person who is emotionally attached to driving a car, who feels the feeling, the passion and the love for driving, we would say take an electric car for a test drive, right? See if this is a thing that you can love. Because what we find is when people drive an electric car, they don't want to go back to a petrol car. The other observation that I would make is I don't need to convince 100% of people of this today. We don't have enough cars available for 100% of people to shift to EVs next year. But if you're thinking an EV might be a thing, or even if you think EV's never going to be for me, do yourself a favour, take one for a test drive, find out what all the fuss is about. Don't knock it till you try it, I think, is what, is what they say, isn't they? That's it. <laughs> there are some schools of thought that a world without traffic noise would be absolute bliss. But there are also safety considerations, particularly for blind and low vision pedestrians, but also for those people with podcasts in their music in their ears, distracted by phones and all those other things. And Knowable Me certainly promotes safe podcasting. What's the happy medium? Yeah, so I think I'll add to your list of people who would potentially be at risk from a zero noise environment. I've got a 12-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old who walk to school. The degree to which those three pay attention to the road around them, I'm a dad, there's probably a bunch of other parents listening on this call. A future that involves all the cars being 100% silent is probably not ideally safe for those people, in addition to the people who are vision impaired and have other challenges. The Australian Federal Government did a consultation just recently around this, considering the adoption of a UN regulation that will require electric vehicles to make a little bit of noise when they move around. Uh, My personal pick is I think they should sound like the Jetsons, but uh, (laughs) ultimately what they sound will be governed by an appropriate regulation. The response from the Electric Vehicle Council, which speaks for the car makers on this kind of thing, is that alignment with the international standards there is probably a good idea. Uh, What we push for is please don't set up a unique Australian requirement because that will drive up the cost for all the car makers, make the cars more expensive, limit the supply, which we don't want to see. But given that there is a UN regulation around this that we can adopt, we should go ahead and adopt that with consultation with the people involved. And is there 
specificity in that regulation about what that sound is or is there some sort of choice in that the Jetson sounds amazing? I'd quite like them to sound like the good old-fashioned ice cream truck because that would certainly get my attention when they were driving around. But I've also spoken to people who say playing music or a musical sound isn't immediately making me feel like that's a car and what is the sound? I'm afraid I'm not in the detail on that one, but the submission we've made to that process is public. It's up on our website under AVAS, Acoustic Vehicle Alerting System. So I speak of Jetsons in jest, right? It's almost certainly not going to be the Jetson sound. It's probably not going to be the sound of a V8 rumbling down the street either. I think the the specificity of exactly what it must sound like, for those interested, please take a close look at the UN regulation. What is... EVs look like from a commercial fleet perspective and actually going into the commercial vehicles. I've talked about buses and things I've seen are EVs now. And yeah, what does it look like from a commercial transport perspective? Yeah. If I think about Victoria, where I'm speaking from today, we already have electrified trams and electrified trains. The buses currently run diesel, but the Victorian government is committed to shifting all of those to electric. They actually recently did a consultation asking industry to provide information, thoughts, guidance around how this might be most efficiently done. Uh, Victoria runs about 4,500 buses as part of the public transport fleet. It's going to take a couple of decades to shift them all over, and it's going to involve infrastructure upgrades. But the use case of a bus is that it's a vehicle that does a very predictable drive, so you can model really accurately how big the battery needs to be and how much energy you're going to use. Uh, And it's a vehicle which sits still at a depot for hours and hours every night. So the the mechanics of can we run a fleet of this nature and recharge them while everybody's sleeping from wind power, ultimately, when we deploy enough wind resources, so it'll be renewable energy, and then run them during the day to form the transport service and stop belching diesel fumes into the streets that these buses are driving down, it will absolutely work. It's just going to take us time to transition it because the capital investment in all of those buses and all of those sites is not a small number, right? It's a public transport system worth billions of dollars. It's going to take time to transition it. What about logistics though? What about trucks? If you can make a bus, presumably you can make a truck. Yeah, absolutely. And we are already seeing that. There are logistics companies in Australia that are already testing, trialing, transitioning to electric vehicles. Anyone interested in this can can Google it. There's a bunch of examples of this that has been done in Australia. Uh, The easiest trucks to transition are going to be the smaller ones, the lighter ones, the things up to 10, 15, 20 tonnes. And the reason for that is that a truck at that size the battery is not excessively big and the infrastructure required to support it is not excessively big. So if you think about the trucks that do the runs from the ports to the distribution warehouses or from the the distribution warehouses to the supermarkets, those vehicles will be relatively straightforward to electrify by comparison to things like long-haul 50-ton trucks that do the run from from Melbourne up to Brisbane. Not that those can't be electrified, they can. It's just a more challenging thing to achieve. Thanks for your time today, Ross. Is there anything about EVs that we haven't covered today that you want to get out into the world? Oh, look, there's lots of things. We talk about all manner of EV stuff at the Electric Vehicle Council. The the takeaway I'd give your listeners, though, is if you drive a car and you're giving consideration to what your next car might be, go test drive one. Try it out. See what you think. That seems like great advice. Thank you very much. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much as well.
My next guest is Paula, who actually initiated the conversation about EVs to get this episode started. Welcome to Knowable Me. Paula, what makes your experience of electric vehicles unique? Thanks for having me, Kelly. In terms of electric vehicles, I'm totally blind and I cannot tell you the number of times I've stood at a curb, gone, yes, it's clear to go, stepped off and I've heard a car coming. And once you do that, you just keep going because if you step back, you then give the like you make it confusing for the driver because they don't know what you're doing. I figure at least if I keep going, my actions are definite. You can see that, okay, she's not going to stop. So I guess I'm going to have to. Fortunately, I, I don't think there's been any near misses, but definitely I've gotten a fright when I've stepped off, started across the road, and then all of a sudden there's a car coming that I did not hear beforehand. That's pretty scary, and I think we'll get into that a little bit more a bit later. But as someone who has been blind their entire life, what are some of your earliest memories of cars and how you've interacted with them? Well, in terms of learning good grounded orientation and mobility skills, we're taught when you're standing at a curb, you listen for cars. It used to be when when I'm back in the day when cars when you could reliably say that all cars made noise you could stand at an intersection where one road was busy and one road was quiet and focus on the quiet road because you knew you would hear those cars coming and now you can't actually do that often i will stand at a road crossing a lot longer now than I used to. And it's interesting because it almost frustrates sighted people. You'll be with sighted people and like, you're right to go. or it, Because they just quick look, off they go. And I don't know about you, but there are very few people who can say, yeah, you're right to cross the road and I'll just go, particularly <laughs> if I'm... <laughs> the number of times I've been standing in a curb and a random person's walked past, oh, you're right to cross now, I just say, thank you, and just <laughs> yeah, keep doing what that. I'm doing. <laughs> because they feel heard and they feel like they've helped. And that's all it's about. I think sometimes that's all they need is that acknowledgement. It doesn't actually matter whether you take them up on their you're right to go or not really. So without uh, incriminating yourself, have you driven a car? I have. So (laughs) in school we had driver's ed and this is hilarious. It still makes me laugh. So I got to drive. I was in a very controlled setting and I'm in the driver's seat and the the, whoever, I don't even know who it was, they had teaching people. And my teacher's aide was in the back and we're driving along. And I was going so slowly that I wouldn't be fine. Even if I did hit something, which I couldn't because I'd say it was in like a, it wasn't on an actual road. (laughs) So I've just turned around, turned my head around. I'm talking to my teacher's aide in the back seat. She's freaking out because I'm not facing the front. (laughs) It's not like I need to. But yes, I have driven a car. So there's been some discussion about adding artificial sound to electric vehicles. How do you feel about that? As long as it's a pro, I think by law, cars should be made to sound like cars. And I don't think there should be an option to have music playing when your car slows down. And apparently some of the cars, when the car slows down or stops, there's music playing on the outside so people can hear it. That should not be an option. It should be 
by law that it has to sound like an actual car because I wouldn't have even known about the fact that cars can play music. Was Were it not for a, for um, a friend of mine recently buying an electric vehicle and them saying, oh, yeah, and they actually changed the sound. I said to Gary this morning, I'm like, oh, so you managed to get your car to sound like a car now? He goes, oh, it's more like a wine. Oh. So, <laughs> car, they should, by law, be made to sound like cars, no exceptions. It's interesting that you say, by law, that the recent government inquiry would point to law or regulations that would mandate a certain level of sound. But as we know, those sorts of standards very often fall short of genuine inclusivity. Do you have a view on how the law and regulations can do more? I wouldn't have thought, if you can... Make a car make sound. You can make a car sound like a car. How hard is it to appreciate the fact that not everybody is on an equal playing field when it comes to accessing information? So, therefore, we need to make it equitable. These things are no-brainers to me, but a lot of society lags behind in that viewpoint, I think. But... I would hope that it does not come to somebody being injured or killed by an electric vehicle because it either has music that you just you're not going to associate that with oh there's a car coming or there's a car park about to take off in my immediate vicinity so you start crossing a road that driver that day just happens to not pay attention you're in their blind spot whatever bang you're in the hospital or you're dead. I hope it doesn't come to that for legislators to raise the bar and actually the law impacts life in this situation, I think. And it's a sad reality that a lot of the laws we have are because things have happened. We have seatbelts in yeah. cars because <laughs> things have happened. Yeah. So it is a sad reality. That's the way we do come up with these measures. Are there any technological advancements or things that are coming in in EVs that you find promising from an accessibility perspective? I'm about to have my first ride in a full electric vehicle today. I don't really know. I'm assuming they have the same kind of sensors that a lot of the cars have. So if you're backing out, if you're going to hit something, etc. I honestly don't know because the reality is I'll never drive one, so it's not something I've really thought about. So you don't believe the hype that we're all going to be in autonomous vehicles soon and we'll all be able to drive wherever we want? Look, I don't know how comfortable I'd be with that because at the end of the day, you would have to have an override feature because if if the car had a functional meltdown and you needed to override it to correct its course, I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't, it doesn't really appeal to me, to be honest. I Yeah, it's interesting. I actually just don't think it's going to happen. We talk Mm. about how I think the laws and regulations are quite risk averse and I really don't think that we're going to get to a position, at least in my lifetime, that Mm. autonomous vehicles are going to be fully autonomous and not require some of that override, like you say, to feel safe and to Mm. be able to actually navigate into, I think maybe highways, I think maybe our freeways might become autonomous at some point so that they the traffic can manage itself and the cars can talk to each other and do what they need to do. But I can't imagine our suburban streets and navigating no. the Coles car park is going to become something that autonomous vehicles are going to be very good at anytime soon. I'll stick to 
having people who can actually drive. <laughs> and I suppose there's a certain level of assumption in that on my part. I assume that when I book a ride share or taxi that the driver can drive. <laughs> you can't always guarantee a bus driver is going to know how to drive either. But if you think about that every day, you'll never go anywhere. Thank you very much for your time today, Paula. Is there anything oh, about electric vehicles that we haven't covered that you'd like to get out into the world? Only to reiterate that I would be very distressed to see the, the wheels of legislation wait until somebody was injured or killed before the I think EVs are dangerous, personally. I don't like them. I worry about they they make navigating more difficult, quite frankly. And I think if we run true to form and wait until somebody is significantly impacted by this, then we're saying we're putting a value on human life. We're going, okay, this group of people have less value in our society Waiting until something happens to somebody who doesn't have what would be considered the run-of-the-mill access to the information in their environment is basically saying, yeah, you know, we place less value on your existence than we do on the, in quotes, majority. And I understand that viewpoint is controversial and I'm sure it'll raise a level of discomfort, but that wait-until approach, it breaks of that. I think there's a reality that also says that that person impacted may not be someone who is blind or low vision. It could be a child. It could be someone who has headphones on and is listening to amazing podcasts. I Mm, don't even think it could be it's necessarily going to impact only the blind and low vision community. So none of us want that outcome. That's a tragic situation to then realise actually we should have done something sooner. That's right. Thanks again, Paul. It's been great chatting to you. And thanks for having me. To round out the conversation, I chatted to Nick from ChargeFox about the many things I'd never considered when it comes to charging your car. Hot tip, it's a bit more complicated than putting your phone on charge. Nick, welcome to Knowable Me. First question for everybody, what makes your experience of electric vehicles unique? Hey, yeah, I think because I work at ChargeFox, which is one of the charging um, operators, I think one of the unique things is we have to, by definition, partner with all sorts of people. So we don't build our own stations. We don't make charging hardware. We're the software layer. And so we're working with governments, councils, retail outlets, food and beverage. We support a number of different brands of charging hardware. We support charging on a number of different brands of vehicles. And that presents challenges, but also opportunities for understanding, you know, what it's really like having an EV, especially when it comes to public infrastructure, not just one sort of part of the market, which other charging provider may may only experience. So I think that's what makes the, the experience a little bit special or unique. Do you drive an EV and which one? I don't have a car, but I've been driving lots of EVs with work. So I've been driving a Model Y and a Model 3 and a BMW iX3 and the Mercedes-Benz EQB. So a bit of a range there. They've all been a lot of fun. If you were to get one, what's your dream car wish list for an EV? Oh, I my favourite car of all time is a Mercedes, a sort of late 50s SL300, which is the 
the gullwing <laughs> doors like this car. And if money was no option, maybe I would convert one of those to an EV. Uh, that would be quite special. And I have the best of both worlds, old school style with a modern, less lower emissions or no, no emissions engine. Can you give us a snapshot of the, the current state of electric vehicle charging in Australia based on your role at Chargefox? Yeah, so it's it's a market that globally speaking is relatively immature, but is growing really quickly. We see in terms of number of charges, like people charging on public infrastructure, we're seeing 9% month on month growth. So it's changing really quickly. Numbers-wise, in terms of stations, we've got about 2,000 public plugs, so we count by plugs, so a connector that someone can use to charge their car, and about 3,000 private, so not necessarily publicly available in, in apartments and things like that. And that represents you know, probably about half or slightly less than half the total out there. We're probably under 10,000 public plugs in Australia with a large concentration in metro areas. But what's happening now, which you can see through some of the arena grant funding, is there's a focus on continuing to build out different um, types of charges, especially in the city. So some fast charges where you could charge a car in 30 minutes or top up uh, in 20 minutes with a mix of slower charges that don't need to be fast because people just plug them in when they're curbside or plug them in when they're at work. And then the other thing that's being funded and built out is people call it like a backbone. If you look at NRMA or some of the other networks we partner with in Tasmania, Queensland, WA, we're connecting all the regions so that people can do longer journeys either for for commercial reasons or for work, which helps connect people to the regions from the cities and vice versa. And so I think as that continues to be built out over the next couple of years, we'll truly see the sort of full interconnection of everyone who may want to buy an EV. And then back to the first point, as they're types of charges become more prevalent this sort of always be charging model where you don't need to necessarily top up at home you just go about your business if you drive to work or if you drive home or you drive to the shops or you drive to go on a longer journey you can charge wherever you are and maybe you don't need to fill your car up you just need to top your car up a couple of percent or maybe 10 percent at each one of those places and overall you just continue your journey like that. You don't need to completely empty and then completely fill up. So I think that will take, yeah, a couple more years to to realise. And as we see EV new car purchases go up, they'll continue to put pressure on those things happening, the installing of new charges. So there's a balance to get right there. But yeah, I think Australia is well-placed at the moment and got a few things to figure out. But like everyone has been learning the hard way, Across the world, there's a lot of learnings to put into practice for this next generation of charging installs. So many questions for me out of that little, that just one bit, <laughs> because I'd, yeah, never, yeah. I'd never really thought of the whole concept of fast charging versus sort of the trickle charging or the slower charging. Um, but I suppose we get that in our, well, I can equate that to is like our USB devices. Some are faster charging and, than others. Mm. And some of them you do leave to just go do their thing and others you like sitting there waiting, going, all right, hurry up. But then also that whole concept of just topping up is very much the service station 
current petrol situation. And I was thinking no one's ever, not that I'm aware of, maybe in remote areas, but it's not like any of us have gone, oh, well, we've got got a stash of petrol at home because we top up when we get Mm. home kind of thing. That's not the way petrol's been done. And so it's interesting that's the that's been the starting point for EVs rather than rather than that being something that's unusual. But then my other question, the question I actually want to ask is are the plugs all the same? Is this a is this an Apple kind of lightning connector kind of problem where they've gone, nope, everyone wants their proprietary plug, so you can't plug a Mercedes into this one, but you can plug a BMW in. Are the plugs the same? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are different from the petrol world and one of the things one of many of the things that's different is it's true that the connect not all connectors are the same and you can't necessarily connect any vehicle to any station so and maybe to add even more variables and confusion to this it's not just the connectors but some stations especially public stations are tethered so they come with a cable and other ones, you have to bring your own cable. The connector type, you've got, did you, do you have your own cable? Some of them you can convert one type to the other through an adapter. Others <laughs> don't, no adaptable work with, with them. And so it can be a bit confusing. But we're lucky in Australia because 99% plus of the vehicles that are being sold all use a type 2 or a combo type 2 connector. We do have some vehicles in Australia that can use type 1 and we also have a number of vehicles that can use the Chatamo plug type and so those are all different. So if you had one of those vehicles without an adapter uh, and you went to a station um, that didn't have that plug type available, you wouldn't um, be able to charge. You might need to convert one type to another type like I said, that's only possible in some of the directions. It's not some sort of universal thing where you can convert every type to, to another type. So that is a challenge and certainly important for prospective EV purchases to understand. If you go with a certain brand, it might limit you to a certain plug type and that may mean you need to prepare for public charging by investing in a cable or an adapter so that you don't end up at a station trying to charge and <laughs> not being able to. Didn't bring my adapter today. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. One of the objections that I've read quite a few times is that the whole thing of I can't have an EV because I don't have off-street parking and therefore am I supposed to run an extension cord over the footpath? I think you've answered this already in that whole top-up model, but what is the answer to that? Yeah, there's there's a few answers, I think, and you do see those funny visuals of the cord running through sort of a PVC pipe down from multi-storey building into the car park. I think for people with street parking only, they would have a reliance on public infrastructure and they may need to engage in charging behaviour that is a bit more fill-up, not top-up. So they might need to go to a station once every couple of days or every day, depending on how much they're travelling, and use those public infrastructures to charge their car. And depending on where you live, the distance and the availability of those stations will be different. And if you were in a situation where you were making a decision based on that, you might have to do 
something very different to what you'd have to do with an ICE vehicle and go onto PlugShare or ChargeFox or something and look at the stations near you and put together a bit of a plan about where am I going to do the most of my charging if I'm not going to charge at home. One of the things that a lot of electric vehicle car manufacturers are doing, though, to create an incentive for people who are in that case especially is they're offering, in some cases, up to six years of free charging with ChargeFox for all public infrastructure stations. So uh, if you buy an Audi at the moment, you get six years of free charging on all ChargeFox stations. Um, Mercedes is up to five years in some cases, depending on the model. And we're working with a variety of other manufacturers to do deals like that so that the price part of that equation is made really easy for people and they feel like they're not disadvantaged because they can't charge at home. It's quite a long, that's quite a long period into the future, particularly given the growth yeah. that you mentioned and particularly given a lot of them don't even offer manufacturer warranties that go that long. <laughs> yeah. If you do the maths on how much you might save in in fuel to electricity and then you further discount that to free for public charging, then maybe that on the margin is is another reason to take the leap and, and get an EV. But yeah, the availability piece is being improved all of the time and there are a number of different companies using government funding or operating privately who are building charges all of the time for those types of people and also bigger businesses are getting into those partnerships to make sure that at shopping centres especially there's always charging. So not everyone should buy it right away. I think it's horses for courses at the moment. But if you look at the trend, I think it's not like stations are going down in number, they're going up and hopefully that means it's easier for everyone to buy, make that purchase decision. And that's that sort of availability question as well. It's not just the availability of how close your nearest station is to you or how the the convenience of of charging. It's also, is there someone going to be parked there when I do it? My council is building a recreation centre just down the road. They're putting charging spots in. Are they going to be prime parks? They're nice and close to the entrance. Therefore, anyone's going to park there. What's that whole concept of availability and, and pulling up and actually being able to charge when you expect to be able to? Do you envisage that being an ongoing problem or an escalating problem? Yeah, it is a problem. It's definitely a problem now. And so there's a few parts to it. There's what uh, EV drivers call being iced, which is if an internal combustion engine vehicle parks in an electric vehicle charging spot. <laughs> There's been a number of state-based rules and regulation changes over the last few years to create penalties for that, which is great. And New South Wales is probably one of the most heavy penalties for if you're on, on, on state land, you can get a fine if that's something that you do. A bit more complicated when you end up on private land in a parking space that's managed by a landlord it's up to them to set the terms and conditions for parking there and that that, again that could include fines or I guess in the most extreme case being towed but that's up to the private operator to decide what to do there but it is a big problem if you've made the decision to install charging infrastructure if it's for a revenue reason you're not going to make any charging revenue if (laughs) an ice car is in the spot And if you've done it to support your core business and you're not trying to necessarily make money from charging, but you want to attract people to your business, whether that's a mall or a shopping center or a restaurant or a tourism place, and those people can't park, then you've defeated the point of having it in the first place. So I think there's an incentive to have some some carrots and some sticks. 
But there's also competition between the EVs themselves as well, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's a site design question, which is if you've got, let's say you've got a spare 100 kilowatts on your switchboard at your local shops, you could put one station with two connectors that could theoretically go up to 100 kilowatts. So that means two vehicles could charge at one time. You could put two 50 kilowatt stations, each with two plugs. So you could get up to four vehicles, but they would each only be up to 25 in that case. And you could have 10 10 kilowatt charges. And so you've got to make this decision about what's the charging experience that my customers want or desire from this location. And therefore, what is the best decision in terms of the speed and the connector type to have there if people are going to spend two three hours because they're there to watch a movie let's say then you don't need a hundred kilowatt charger you can make the argument if the average time someone's in the car spot is going to be over an hour or two hours or three hours then what's the point in them getting up to 100 percent in 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then sitting in the spot not letting anyone else charge there's a kind of site design i think decision to make there and different installers are working with clients to try and make better decisions when it comes to the mix of charging stations made available depending on the the use case. And seems there are so many variables for the user to have to understand and know what they're going into, what type of charge, what type of plug, whether cable, mm-hmm. the speed, how long they need to spend there. Like it's it the feels price. the price. Yeah, it feels quite complex, which at the moment petrol isn't because you can drive past and there's a big signboard that tells you what the price is. And it's the same thing. It's the same juice. I know there's Mm. variables within that, but generally it's the same juice. And I thought electricity was the same, but because of those variables, it's not. So yeah, that's a really interesting use case for, for what people need to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is very different and it takes some getting used to, but I also would say that once you've developed those new patterns of behavior or habits, I think it be- it becomes very normal for, for people with the maybe the exception of doing a journey to a place they haven't been before, which requ- does require some upfront planning, which maybe is before Google Maps or ways people were doing this, planning their <laughs> trips with maps or, or whatever. And I think there is a little bit of that a renaissance of this trip planning that's required for successful or safe EV travel but there's a great community of EV drivers out there to help. So a shameless plug, what is ChargeFox doing to help? Yeah, we so ChargeFox has got the um, largest network of public charging plugs in, in Australia, and we do that by working with people who own and operate infrastructure. So we provide the software to help them do that as best we can. And that also means that those stations um, are on the ChargeFox network and available for anyone to use. That includes private individuals as well as fleets and other um, commercial businesses that have electric vehicles. In terms of making things easier, there's a few things we've been working on. One of the things at a software level is there's this problem around interoperability of apps and RFID cards and different networks having their own walled gardens, which if you look at more mature businesses overseas, they've solved this problem either through regulation or sort of coordination through something called roaming. And roaming basically allows 
people to charge on a charge station that's on another network using an application or some mechanism that doesn't necessarily have to be the mechanism that network stipulates. So a a way of thinking about it is imagine you had a Commonwealth Bank credit card or ATM card and you just couldn't use it at a Westpac terminal. It'd be crazy, right? You'd be like, I've got money on here. And I shouldn't have to decide which restaurant to go to or shopping center to go to or shop to shop at just because they don't have Westpac. And then if those companies all play ball together, but it was still really expensive and there was like crazy fees for using the ATM or using the the POS machine, you could still do it, but it wouldn't be like desirable. And so there's a vision to get to in charging where um, the ChargeFox is working on, uh, which is to to bring this roaming thing to Australia and get people who own and operate networks to share access to those stations to make it as easy as possible for people to charge however they want to charge, whether that's through the RFID card that they got given from one of the charging networks, whether it's through a ChargeFox app or some other application on their mobile phone, whether it's through new technologies like plug and charge where you have a certificate on your car that basically has your credit card on it and you just plug the you know charger into your car and the the sort of magic that happens behind the scenes so i think at the moment there's a lot of things that get in the way from from making the charging experience almost boring and i think it could be a lot more boring and simple than today and yeah we're really working on trying to get out of the way of that and um, make it easier for people to charge however they want to charge and that was just another variable that i hadn't considered in the whole process of how long it takes to charge the cable the connector the place but also then the brand of charger effectively and the network that it's on it's it's quite complex to navigate so i i think it's it's a great thing that chargefox is in there trying to bring it all together I'm interested to know, it may not be something specific to charging, but what are your thoughts of the artificial sounds that electric vehicle makes? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm familiar with it to some extent. I know there's a number of models that have sort of noise making exterior of the car and that, that play that sound or play a sound re- related to the speed of the car or proximity to things, especially in that like 20, 30, 40 kilometre speed range. And I've seen some sort of like statistics around the number of accidents involving pedestrians, as well as qualitative surveys that have been done with people who have disabilities and the way that they feel about the risk that the quietness of the cars creates, especially in a metropolitan setting. And so I think there's a concern around that. And I think there's some ways to do it better. I won't mention the brand, but... There's one very well-selling car in Australia that's very affordable that has quite a loud noise-making machine on it. And one of the most popular videos on YouTube, if you look up that model, is like, how do I turn this thing off? It's really annoying. People, the drivers get really annoyed by the sound. One of the benefits of having an EV is that the in-cabin sound is really low and people really like that. And there's probably some design challenges to overcome there and it's a shame if someone's put this thing in a car and someone else has gone and bought it and ripped the cord out that provides the power to the noisemaker defeating the purpose of having it there but I think there's maybe some more elegant types of solutions one of the other things putting noisemakers aside is just the autonomous driving capabilities getting a lot better 
And I did this test in one of the cars where I had it on and I basically tried to back into a concrete block and the car literally braked for me. Like it just wouldn't, it basically stopped me from, like it knew you're not slowing down fast enough. And I felt the brake pedal depress under my foot. I wasn't pressing it. And yeah, so I think there's probably some better designs for the noise making machines because I know that people disable them, which is a shame. I think you've really nailed the concept though of going, if it can be turned off. So if the noisemaker can be turned off, if that whole braking safety measures can be turned off, then what are we really doing to protect Mm. people? And so I think that's some interesting times to come in how that's regulated and managed. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there's, and there's the statistics of it, but I think there's the, if someone feels unsafe, even if statistically there's no difference, which I'm not saying there is or isn't, but if someone is, if there's a member of the community that feels unsafe, like it's, that's bad and they'll have, there'll be follow-on effects of that. Walking around in fear is not a healthy way to live for a connected, cohesive community and the, the knock-on effects of that on mental health, et cetera, aren't, aren't positive. So I think it's important for us to look at both the, yeah, the statistics but also those qualitative research into people's perception and people's opinions, behaviour as to how they feel around electric cars and use both of the data points together to, to make maybe some better policy or technology decisions. Nick, it's been great chatting to you today. Is there anything about electric vehicles or charging that we haven't covered that you want to get out in the world? I think one of the, I think there's one topic that I think Australia isn't doing a great job of at the moment, which is like design, accessible design for public charging, which is something I wanted to, to, to speak about. So there are standards now that exist in America and in and in the United Kingdom and in other parts of the European Union around the accessibility of, of stations. And if you look at those standards and you look at the majority of stations, the stations that are on the Chargebox network included, a lot of them wouldn't pass those guidelines or standards. And I think there's this unfortunate double-edged sword with new vehicles, some of which happen to be EVs, where there's an increase in like in-car technology that can provide a better driving experience, especially for people with disabilities. However, if that is coupled with really unaccessible, difficult to use public charging infrastructure, then all of those wins that are made with voice control in the car, etc., just a moot. If you can't get someone to install a home charger in a way that's accessible, if you can't rely on your nearest public station to have enough clearance between the edge of the parking space to allow a wheelchair to go in, if the charger's mounted too far back off the curb, which means someone with a mobility disability literally can't grab the cable because it's too far away, then it's all for naught for that particular person. And that was just such a shame because some of those design uh, principles when designing the site are easier to implement with a bit of planning and maybe a little bit of extra budget. And they can really bring to life all of the other advancements that have been made in the car. And so I think there's something to be done around that in Australia. And you can't make all stations meet those standards. There's just some 
like some stations are inside a, a car park and that car park hasn't been built with that accessibility in mind in all of its spots and putting a station there isn't going to change that. But there are a bunch of sites where you could. And I think that the owners and operators of stations and people like ChargeFox and other networks have a responsibility to start introducing or influencing the people in the charging community and in the charging environment to implement some of that stuff. There's been lots of studies. There's been lots of reports written by all sorts of people about how you take the standards from overseas and apply them. And I think the bit that we need to do now is actually go and apply them and work with people so that the extra $1,000 or $10,000 feels like a good investment um, to them because it might mean the difference between a number of people in the community buying an EV or not. And again, we all have that same mission. And so we should be actioning things that bring that about. And that part of that is making sure all sorts of different people can drive and use a car and be able to charge them. That's a fabulous insight. Just the idea that we're starting this fresh, this is new infrastructure in a lot of places. So we have such a great opportunity to make it accessible from the beginning. I'm I'm not optimistic that I'm going to get a autonomous vehicle in my lifetime that will allow me to drive. So I don't know that I'm advocating yet to make sure that charging stations have Braille on them. I probably don't need to be on that. There's there's a lot of other things I need to fix before before Mm. I get to that from my perspective, but definitely from the mobility, all those mobility questions and access is a really good point. So thank you for raising that. I really appreciate it. Great insight. Yeah, no worries. I think, yeah, it's it's an untapped thing here in Australia so far. We're going to double the number of plugs in the next two to three years. It'd be great if they were all built in a better way. Amazing. Thanks for your time today, Nick. I really had a great chat. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kelly. been a bit longer than usual but such great conversations thanks for sticking around you can now leave a voice message for the podcast on our website at knowable.me slash podcast look for the record button it'd be great to hear your thoughts on evs and anything else you'd like to say a big thank you to ross paul and nick for coming and sharing their knowledge and experience as always please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics feel free to reach out to me on social media or by emailing podcast at knowable.me. Thanks for listening.